Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just after four o'clock and it's time once again for Tuesday Home Time. Jane Bartlett and I'll be here until 5.30 this afternoon. Today, the work of an activist for many, many years. Kate Lewis has been involved with Western Sahara, the, the fight for justice in Western Sahara. Today, we'll hear about her earlier life before she became involved with activism for Western Sahara. It's also coming up very soon, the 40th anniversary party for Friends of the Earth Melbourne. It actually was the 40th birthday last year, but everyone's too busy, so they put it off, but they can't put it off any longer. So it's happening on the 8th of May, and you're all invited. You'll hear more about that. There was a forum at Sydney University last Tuesday afternoon, fighting back at attempts to silence the BDS movement there with the staff at Sydney Uni and broader. We're speaking to one of the lecturers at Sydney Uni, Paul Duffield. But first, let's hear it from Mr. Kevin Healy. And I know it's that time of the year and the date, but he's got it all under control. A week, Jane, listener, when I'll have to hurry through this because I'm busily clearing out my kitchen drawers before it's too late. And I'd, I'd advise you to do the same, clearing the house of anything sharp and especially that drawer of knives in the kitchen because the front door could be knocked down at any time and these paramilitary... Sorry, our defenders of our freedoms could storm through the house and cart me away. After a little bit of necessary biff and kick and that sort of thing, normal police procedure, they'll hold me for two years or whatever without charge because possessing knives in the house is clearly a terrorist threat. Despite this terrorist threat, this federal cop deputy, Supremo Neil Gofear again, said... At this stage, we have no information like, you know, that it was a planned, you know, beheading. Pew. Still, it's important to throw that line into the fear equation, and we must presume the two people charged after all that face court on the heinous offence of having knives in the house. Thus, I'm taking no risk, listener. They're all out the door. Thank goodness, and no coincidence whatever, of course, but our ever-alert but not alarmed protectors uncovered this horrendous terrorist threat just before we celebrate the great event that forged our values, made us what we are. How dare these terrorists threaten violence on the very day when we celebrate a failed invasion landing at the wrong spot on the other side of the planet? How dare they threaten violence on the great day when we celebrate trained killing, the glorious trained killed, the glorious dead. What a pity the anti-terrorist lot weren't as vigilant a hundred years ago. They could have stopped the terrorism, stopped the slaughter by preventing the working class cannon fodder from leaving the country in defence of and to bolster the coffers of the corporate boardrooms. And Woolworth's Trillions got into a bit of trouble for profiting from the Anzac name. Apparently it's a marketing title and you have to pay for it, as you should. And the authorities and the mass media barons would obviously be abashed at the thought that any 
anyone would attempt to exploit Anzac. Really, listen, there is a strong argument for getting out of the country for the next week or so, isn't there? It's already unbearable, and it's going to get even worse. Speaking of media barons, that repository of morality and objectivity, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, which we recall so abraded former socialist big supremo Julia Gorlinghard for breaking a promise about a carbon price, has launched a major attack on state socialist supremo Who Who, abrading him for not breaking a promise not to build another freeway, which the experts tell us will, like every other freeway, be the panacea to our transport problems before, like every other freeway, it becomes the next problem demanding the next panacea, the next freeway. Well, it's just a daily expectation, attack after attack on poor old hoo-hoo, with responsible, caring, business-class party spokespeople, including current big supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, also stunned that hoo-hoo won't break his promise. I have set the benchmark for breaking promises. Tiny argued his case. Tiny was even more stunned that Who Who wanted to spend the freeway money, or a percentage of it, on, wait for it, wait for it, public transport. I will not have public money wasted on public transport. Interesting that, because the whopping sin was so upset it devoted its first five pages to the unbroken promise, even dredging up in a vox pop eight people clearly chosen at random from all over Melbourne who denounced the government for its perfidy in keeping a promise. We'll lose faith in government if they refuse to break promises. So obviously the Wapping Sin could not find one person in all of Melbourne who supported the government, didn't want the freeway. Well, they probably ignored the feral pests that were the root of this problem, but after five pages about wasting our money, $640 million for nothing, screaming across P1, same day, True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review P1, lend-lease the public purse to us, gives in on $1.2 billion compo. The new Victorian Socialist Government's threat to legislate a 1.2 billion penalty clause out of existence has forced developer Lend-Lease the Public Purse and several European builders to walk away with no compensation. Hang on, listener, is that the same story? And the day before that, the Wapping Sin had several pages devoted to the treacherous anti-social, anti-community interest links between the state government and the evil trade union movement. Again, concerned, caring business class spokespeople aghast at this threat to democracy. Bringing us to Federal Assistant Economic Guru Josh Freidem Workersberg, who knows how evil trade unions and workers for that matter are. Josh attacking Socialist Party show trials in Senate inquiries into the tax practices of giant corporates. Political grandstanding embarrassing good corporate citizens, like the big four bank executives to be grilled before the Senate this week over financial advice disasters. Well, well disasters for the people getting the advice. He was upset the socialists argued the tax con commissioner should not be allowed to maintain the confidentiality of corporates, as has been the case for decades, and it has worked well for True Blue Aussie. In what way, Josh? Oh, well, it prevents them having to pay any tax. 
Oh, and a correction. Well, an update. We reported last week BHP for bloody huge profits was paying all of 2.5% tax via an arrangement involving flogging True Blue Aussie Iron through Singapore and Switzerland and the Netherlands came into it. Well, apologies to bloody huge profits. Report this week that 2.5% was wrong. Sorry for that. The real figure is zero, as in naught. Something about a sweetheart deal with the Singapore government. The BHP boardroom choir was heard singing, Let me call you sweetheart all the way to the bank. Rio Tato, the profits, was mentioned in the same report last week, but no update on whether it's also paying zero or being slugged with the crippling 2.5%. And the High Court made this sensible ruling that corruption inquiries like the one in New South Wales, Habstroke, has no power to investigate corruption. Well, limited powers. And commentators speculate that the demoted caring business class minister, Arthur Sins of Dunnas, who as caring business class party treasurer had no idea where the money was coming from, and as chair of this water company had no idea the company he chaired was donating to the party of which he was treasurer, no idea can now have any risk of an adverse finding thrown out because they have no power to investigate him. Well, the five majority of their honours were just interpreting the law and it makes sense to legislate that you can't be corrupt. But ascending his honour thought it didn't make sense but 5-1 put him in his place. On principle and morality, what principled and decent people they are down at Cotton Don to Marketing who withdrew that sign in their dressing rooms, address makes no sense unless it inspires men to want to take it off you. After some narrow-minded women complained, they considered it sexist and offensive. Whatever happened to a good sense of humour over the smart little lines concocted by the boys in the marketing department? Obviously, as they laughed at their clever wit, it never dawned on them some people, particularly non-men people, but then again a lot of uh, men people as well, might just find it a touch sexist and offensive. Uh, so you'll now do the principled and decent thing. Uh, certainly, now that we got the publicity we knew we'd get, brilliant marketing, eh? <laughs> of course, cotton onto marketing has also cottoned on to make cheap sell very expensive through those happy, happy Bangladesh workers who provide their profits. Sorry, too cynical. Like so many True Blue Aussie outlets, the cottoned onto board sits around and says, Look, we must do something about world poverty. Let's start by making life better for all those poor Bangladeshi women. See? Pure altruism. Wouldn't dream of exploiting anyone, especially women. And this self-promoting scientist, Dr. Carl, has stopped promoting Tiny and Team True Blue Aussie's massively popular intergenerational report after complaints the report left a bit to be desired. Now, I must say I've seen him doing this performance, but I've never listened, so until he withdrew from the promotion, I had no idea he was promoting it. But not that my interest in advertisements is a definitive example of their effectiveness, but uh, Dr. Carl, why did you withdraw from this publicly funded campaign? I saw the light, uh, or, it or as it turned out, I didn't see much light after the, the proverbial hit the fan. <laughs> Meaning? Uh, well, the fan turns clockwise, and the no, 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 not the technical scatological details. Well, when I did the ads, I didn't realise what was in the report. 
so finally, you talked about advertise something you knew nothing about. Uh, well, that's the science of advertising. <laughs> good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr. Kevin Healy. And as I say always, you can hear him tomorrow morning. He's there for an hour between 9 and 10 for City Limits. And you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station. You could be listening on your radio, 8.55am. You could be listening on your digital radio, 3CR. You could be listening on your computer, streaming. Or you could listen to this program for up to a week until the next one comes along. Or you can have this program podcast to your computer so you can listen at any time you like. So the best way to find out all these extras is to get onto the website at 3cr.org.au. Today we're going to learn about H3O. Uh, Professor, if I'm not mistaken, H3O is the chemical compound hydronium. That's correct, Nelson, but it's also an exciting new formula. H3O is simply the addition of water and the subtraction of sugary drinks multiplied by 30 days. Ah, I see. And the results? You can kickstart weight loss, reduce health risks, reduce tooth decay, and save money. Take VicHealth's H3O Challenge and switch sugary drinks for water for 30 days. Find out more at h3ochallenge.com.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. Spoken by Richard Moss and Tim Potter. I was not really brought up to be an activist. Not about political matters. Yes, to being a contributor to society. Yes, to fighting for something worthwhile. But not by demonstrating, marching in the street or doing stunts outside corporate AGMs like I do now. That's Kate Lewis, the Vice President of the Australian Western Sahara Association, responding to a question I asked her about her early activism. And for those not familiar with the work of OSA, a little background. It is the Australian Western Sahara Association working for justice for the Saharawi people. OSA is an incorporated non-profit association which was set up to raise awareness and promote the Sahrawi cause in Australia and to campaign for a free and fair referendum on self-determination for the Sahrawi people. The independent struggle in Western Sahara mirrors almost exactly that of East Timor. In 1975, when the colonial power Spain withdrew, the neighbouring country Morocco invaded. A war ensued until a UN-sponsored ceasefire was declared in 1991 when a referendum was promised. Despite UN pressure, Morocco refuses to agree to a referendum. And campaigning for justice for the Sahrawi people has been a big part of Kate's life for many years. Today she speaks about her activities prior to learning about Western Sahara under occupation and next week who worked for justice for the Sahrawi people. I first asked Kate about the influences of her parents as she was growing up. I immediately think of some years when my father became the president of the Point Lonsdale Progress Association and had a lot of trouble persuading the council that was based in Queenscliff, which was a fairly urban place, not to put tarmac roads, and if they were going to tarmac them, to make them bend according to the route that it had naturally taken, rather than to bulldoze straight through and make them straight. Unfortunately, he lost that battle, and the straight roads got bulldozed through, and they became wind tunnels, and they made Point Lonsdale look a lot more urban than it did. On my mum's side, 
a person who wouldn't particularly stick her neck out. She did have things that she believed in. She had an aunt. She was quite an amazing campaigner in a way. Very influential time in her life when she married a guy who was running a outback cattle station. She went to the Northern Territory. She became very interested in Aboriginal people. But sadly, he got malaria and died after they'd not been there much more than a year. And it was very traumatic for her and she had to come home. When she kind of rehabilitated herself, she somehow got very involved with returned servicemen from Monbulk. She became their kind of mentor. Uh, Some of them were not very literate, and so she would help them fill out all their compensation claims, and she would represent them in Melbourne at the appropriate office to try and get their return service payments or whatever they were due. became quite a big thing, and she started building up a library for them. So I remember her when she was going round all the old bookshops in Melbourne. Then when she found a book that she thought was important, she would buy multiple copies and she would give them to other people. We got offered a book about the Second World War, Lord Russell's book, I think, called The Scourge of the Swastika. It was very important to understand what had happened, she thought. Then my father had joined the Air Force when he was young. He got involved in radio with the Air Force. So there was a book called From Pigeon Post to Wireless. He got given that book more than once. When we said, oh, well, we've already got one of those, she'd say, oh, well, then you can have another. (laughs) There was never a way of um, arguing against her. Was your father away for a period when you were younger? He was training the pilots at Point Cook in radio. He stayed at the early part of the war, but I think it was around about 1941 or two when he was called overseas. He'd done a training at Cranwell in the UK in radio because there weren't other places here. He started the radio school at Point Cook, so that's where he had to go to train. So he had a great respect for the... British Air Force, the RAF, a request came through for somebody to work with the RAF in the war and he thought that sounded like a great job and he applied and got that job. It gave him a rather unusual war experience compared with other Australians because his post started in Baghdad, I think, or Habaniya in Iraq and then he moved to Cairo and then he moved across to North Africa to Tunis and then when the forces were pushing through Italy he went up to Sicily and Italy managed to survive because he was in charge of signals so he wasn't on the front line. So he was absent for the first few years of your life? Yes that's right. I was about two when he left, two or three and I was six I think when he came back. Australian servicemen didn't come back when they had leave unlike the uh, British servicemen My husband is British and his father was in the Navy and his war memories are being taken to Southampton or Newcastle or Portsmouth or somewhere like that to meet his ship when it was coming through. Home was in Melbourne? Home was in Melbourne, yes. Where did you go to school? I went to school at Melbourne Girls Grammar School, which was a very interesting school. I was really lucky to be there in the days of Dorothy Ross as head teacher, 
who was a very innovative teacher. I think I learnt a lot from her, actually, about committees, about being involved in decision-making. She abolished prefects and we had a school council, for example. It was a church school. The prayer that we had to say at the beginning of the council meetings was, give us courage to change what ought to be changed, serenity to accept what cannot be changed, and wisdom to know the one from the other. And I've often thought of that was very well-chosen words. I mean, it's a well-known form of words, I know, but uh, it was a very good education for young people to have. I started there during the war in the 1940s, and I think that all of that experience and through the reconstruction of Europe in the 1950s, one of the old girls of the school became involved with the Red Cross. That was one of our school charities, and there would be speakers from time to time and Save the Children Fund. And so the school had its charities, which I suppose have influenced one as, as a child. The United Nations itself was a very deep interest of certain members of staff, and there was a United Nations club. We had to learn about all the bodies of the United Nations and so on. So that, I suppose, has uh, been a good grounding for me to understand how that works. It was very big on non-competitive influences. We didn't have a debating society. We had a discussion club because we had to find a way to agree about things rather than trying to just knock other, each other down. We did play competitive sport because there really wasn't any alternative for the school and there would have been an outcry if we couldn't take part in inter-school competitions and so on. But it was sort of downplayed. The school would celebrate the fact that the school had won or something like that, but they tried very hard not to make individuals into heroines and, and whatever. I think I was there when it was became the most egalitarian and we did have school uniform, but the school blazers used to have a special pocket for the people who were on the school council. But by my day, we'd abolished that and we just had a badge that we wore on the lapel. After Dorothy Ross left, a very traditional teacher came from the UK and she brought back all those things. It was rather sad. Was there an expectation that you'd go to university? Definitely. My mother had been to university. My father hadn't, but he really wished he had. He had had to leave school when he was 16 because his elder two brothers had been killed in the First World War and his father needed the two younger boys to help him on the farm, which they had up in Seville. went out of school and went to Dukey with his older brother. What did your mother study when she was at university? Uh, languages, mainly French and German. Did you follow on? I did French and philosophy, though, not French and German. University is usually the place where things happen for young people. They've suddenly they've got a bit of freedom, they've got all the clubs, they've got issues. Did that happen yeah. for you too? To quite a large extent, but uh, the Melbourne system, especially in those days, meant that you lived at home. I was very keen the idea to go and live in a college or things, but it wasn't financially possible. So I did stay at home, and so there is a kind of steadying influence, if you like. It was an exciting time because there wasn't so much happening at Melbourne University then. Really interesting drama work, lots of interesting meetings at lunchtimes. Politics was quite an important part of that, but I didn't get involved in that. Some of my friends joined the ALP club, 
But you'd, you'd come out, there'd be uh, notices written in chalk on the footpaths everywhere about where to go for what meeting or something that was happening. And you just don't get that buzzing sense now. Things have evolved so much. Nearly everybody had a Commonwealth scholarship and a few people who needed to have a living allowance as well would get a secondary teacher's college scholarship and they would then be bound to teach for three years on the completion of their degree. We campaigned against that at the time. We thought that was inhibiting young people's freedom too much. But I think if the present students could work off their bond in three years today, they would be very happy to do that. They have a much bigger debt to work off and it's very serious for them. Did you plan to go into teaching? I didn't really want to go into teaching, not secondary teaching. I don't think I really knew what I was going to do. I just thought I would follow what I was interested in. And I did a master's degree on a French philosopher in Melbourne. Then I managed to get a scholarship to go to Paris, study philosophy there. So I didn't think it was going to give me an academic career, but I just thought I'd do what I was interested in and hope that it would lead to something worthwhile. After a couple of years in Paris, it was quite hard to live on the amount of money that you got as a student. I started thinking I'd look for a job, and I was very lucky because it was the time of the expansion of the universities. They were giving jobs out pretty easily. This was in Leeds in the UK. What was it like living in Paris? That was the 60s? Yes, yes. It was very interesting, a salutary experience as well, because as a foreign student, you were the very bottom of the pecking order, and you had no status at all if you couldn't speak French absolutely perfectly. Yeah, that was quite interesting, and I think my first year, you were sort of a bit cowed by it all, and then I became very aggressive and made my way and then I learnt enough to be able to get by and be polite and, and sort of try and interact fairly normally with people. It was quite a learning experience in that way. Was there any politics going on while you were there? Oh, yes, there, were, there certainly was, and uh, the students were having big revolutions and so on because it was a very, very different method of teaching and the largest lecture that I had was in psychology and there were a 1,000 students in the huge, big amphitheatre at the Sorbonne. But that class, they then subdivided and you had you were working in a group of four for the practical work. They had what they called tutorials. They were groups of about a 100, but students were given a chance to read a paper and, and have it discussed. A big university? It, oh, it, is a big, it was a big university. That was just before they split and had some new campuses. I mean, the same was true with Melbourne University. Part of what was so good, I think, about the time when I was there was that it was a huge bowl of talent that then got dispersed into the other campuses at Monash first and then La Trobe and then Deakin. So a lot of my teachers became professors in other universities. I remember saying this to somebody not long ago and they said, yes, it took Melbourne a decade to get over that, to recover from having spawned all those other universities. And the same thing was happening a bit in Paris to England, to Leeds. Yes. Paris was a very beautiful place, and even when you had no money and whatever, you could still really enjoy looking at the beautiful buildings. And, and even when I had practically no money, 
I um, would still take a bus trip to go to the library just to see the very lovely route that you took um, going across the Seine and through the Louvre to the Palais Royal. Then I came to Leeds. I flew to Manchester and then it was getting dark and there were all these black buildings looming in the fog. I stayed overnight and got a train to Leeds and Leeds was also had a lot of black buildings that were still very smoke-encrusted from the Industrial Revolution. And it didn't look very beautiful at all. But Leeds was a very friendly place. Yorkshire in general is a very beautiful place. As soon as you're out of the town, you've got wonderful countryside around. I've always been glad that I decided to go to Leeds. And what did you do there? I was teaching philosophy. They were very friendly and it was really easy to fit in. Had you met Harry yet? No, not at that stage. He came a year later to Leeds. He did his PhD in Stanford in America, and then he came to Leeds. Were you getting homesick? Not as much as everyone thought I should, I think. (laughs) I think I was still on a big adventure. I liked the beach and the bush, and I did miss that a bit. I didn't go back for 10 years. It was when my son was born... And then after that, partly to uh, make sure that the children knew their grandparents, we would come every couple of years or so. And once the children got a little bit older, that opened up a new avenue for you? It was doing things that were linked to where they were at at that time, postnatal support groups organised by the National Childbirth Trust. We had several groups in Leeds around where I was living Some people were training to become breastfeeding counsellors and other people training to become antenatal teachers. That's when I got involved editing a cookbook. We um, decided to make it a bit educational. We wrote some little foreword pieces about weaning a baby onto a vegetarian diet and the benefits of whole foods. That would have been a bit radical at that time? Yes, it was quite a new thing, but it was a growing movement. It probably started in America, despite what one might think, which is also, of course, the the home of the big agribusiness and the big food industry brands. And I guess that the Americans were reacting against that as well. We made this book that we, we finally got a title called Growing Up With Good Food, Vegetarianism, was that something that was growing at the time too? I think so, and it wasn't entirely a vegetarian book, but it was a issue that concerned some mothers who were because the health professionals would be liable to tell them that they couldn't give a baby a balanced diet, and so it was necessary for babies to have animal protein. We wanted to help them understand that you can have complete protein. don't know that we did it in that book, but one can see that protein isn't actually the main issue, that there are very many other issues that are really important that are more to do with how the food is produced and grown. The micronutrients, all the minerals and vitamins that are in well-produced food are almost just as important as protein because the amount of protein you really need is present in most vegetables, often thought of as just the decoration or the filler if you're too poor to eat meat. But that's not actually so. Was baby formula an issue then? 
Oh, yes, that's right, and I guess I got involved with that. It was focused on Nestle which because they were the big promoter in the third world. Baby Milk Action Coalition, it was called, based in Cambridge, as I remember. Doing this cookbook, and because it got wide publicity in big dailies and the weeklies, the Observer and the Guardian and other newspapers, the Telegraph maybe, brought us into contact with all of these other groups that were having issues about food. One could see that food was a lot more than just having a meal. It goes into all kinds of other issues, including the whole ecology of growing food and the politics of growing food, way in which farmers get recompensed for what they've grown, especially in the third world. Were you also involved in the debate between natural childbirth and medically controlled childbirth? Oh, definitely. That was a very central issue for people in the National Childbirth Trust. It had used to being called the Natural Childbirth Trust, but they changed the name so as not to make mothers feel guilty if they didn't have a natural birth. But there was some kind of fine line people were trying to walk at the same time saying that it is better for the mother and for the baby if a natural birth can be made possible. If it's not, then you need intervention and that's okay. There was another group in London called the Birth Centre, which was more radical, I suppose. They put out a lot of very good literature, which we used to promote. There were people who, within the movement who were promoting various leaders of the natural childbirth movement such as Ina Mae Gasking, an American midwife, and she came to Leeds at one point. The other one that made a big influence was Le Boyer, a Frenchman who had a book called Gentle Birth, and he was emphasizing very much the experience for the baby. Along those same lines was another obstetrician called uh, Michel Audin, who had a practice in Bidivier in France. He had a whole unit that was mainly composed of midwives and then he was part of it. He would observe the birth and if there was any difficulty then he would come straight in with a caesarean section. He didn't mess around with forceps or other ways of trying to make the natural birth work. had a bath, a big pool in his unit where women could give birth in water if they wanted because he was stronger than the midwives he would often play the role of simply supporting a woman who wanted to stand up or squat giving birth the midwife is the one who should be guiding the baby as it were and he would just support the woman and that's a very much of a symbol of how he saw the process and we got him to come to Leeds one time and he uh, was the key speaker at a one-day symposium that we had called giving birth and being born What was the power of midwives in those times? There were a lot of very wonderful midwives who had still a certain amount of power in the UK, although the medicalisation of childbirth meant that their power base was constantly being threatened. It was, to some extent, it often seemed like a male-female adversarial thing because most of the obstetricians were men and most of the midwives were women but it was really hard I think there were some very good midwives in London and there was a group called the radical midwives but I don't remember there being a unit quite like 
Michel Audin had, where they really were the main birthing professional. There were hospitals that started having things called birth centres where people could have a room that was more like a hotel or like an ordinary bedroom than like a hospital room. This happened in Australia as well, I think, at the Queen Vic. I remember going to see that on a visit here. I don't know quite what's happened since. I have a feeling that the midwives are having a losing battle at the moment. There are very good statistics to show that the midwives do deliver better healthier babies. Then there's the the woodcraft folk. Oh yes, well then the children got a bit older than they... There's two children? Two children, yes. They wanted to join this group. There were quite a few other children from their primary school in this group, which was a bit like scouts or guides, except that it was a mixed group. It was formed as a reaction against the more military aspects of the scout movement which had kind of come in the wake of the Boer War. And in 1925, it was formed in that interwar period where there was still a lot of referencing to Native people's movements and in particular the Native American movement. And so that's where woodcraft came from. It wasn't that we sat of an evening uh, whittling our pieces of wood. It was to do with living with nature and understanding how nature worked. So there was always a ecological angle to it. There was also a peace angle because it was anti-war. I'm not quite sure what came first, but it became the youth movement of the cooperative movement. And so cooperation was a very big theme in the woodcraft folk, and they played cooperative games instead of competitive games. And so that, I suppose, struck a bell with me going back to the anti-competitive ideas at my school. It was also big on gender and racial equality, a lot of opportunities for doing things outside with them. There there were were weekends, hostelling weekends away, and then these camps in the summer and sometimes other times of the year. Did they get involved with children from other countries as well? Yes, because it became, uh, this organisation was uh, connected or affiliated to others around Europe, which had grown out of resistance to Nazism during the Second World War. There was the Falcon Movement, which is in the German-speaking and Scandinavian countries. There was Archie Ragazzi in Italy. I don't know if it's formally linked, but it's very close to the Communist Party there, which was very big in Italy. In France, there was something called France et Franche Camarades, which were resistance-minded people. Those were some of the main groups that we were affiliated with. There would be exchange groups going from one to the other. When the kids got a bit older, they weren't not when they were in the primary age group, but when they were more in the early secondary age group. But then we started having what we called solidarity delegations, where there wasn't necessarily an exchange, but we would invite children from countries which were in some kind of difficulty, such as Palestine or Nicaragua, to come. We actually hosted the first South African group that came after apartheid had ended. 
And that's Kate Lewis, who's the Vice President of the Australian Western Sahara Association, talking about early activism. And next week on the program, Kate's introduced to some of the children from the camps in Algeria who were brought to England as a relief from the, the heat of the desert. So that was her the beginning of her involvement with Western Sahara a lot more as well as that. But that's on the program next week. Promote your community event, be it a rally, meeting, fundraising gig, call-out for entries or piece of Agiprop on 3CR's online community calendar. Not-for-profit community organisations and activist artists are invited to upload community event information and event poster or photos. Go to 3cr.org.au and click on Add Your Community Event Here on the right-hand column under Community Events. 3CR, spreading the seeds of dissent. Hey Jodie, I'm so excited. I just can't hide it. Oh, just in the words of the Pointer Sisters, hey? What? What's happening? The new 3CR t-shirts are coming out. We had a competition, Kate Reid won it, and it's so beautiful. It's got roses and a love heart, and then the caption is, resistance is fertile. Oh, too deadly that, eh? So in order to get one, go to the 3CR website and follow the link to shop. And right. they're $30. $30? Oh, yeah. what a bargain. And 25 for kids. You'll be able to secure one for yourself because they're in hot demand. Yay, get one now. I'm so excited. I just can't hide it. I'm about to lose control and I think I like it. Oh, yeah. I'm so excited. And I just can't hide it. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. Friends of the Earth Melbourne celebrated its 40th birthday in 2014, but everyone was too busy campaigning to have a party. Well, now they've set the date. It's the 8th of May at the Melbourne Spiegel Tent in Johnson Street, Collingwood. Tickets are selling fast for what will be a spectacular night of entertainment. Cam Walker is currently National Campaign Coordinator and joins me to talk about some history and what is happening currently with the attacks against green groups, including foe by the federal government. It's the early 1970s. There was a lot of movements going on that time, which, which will explain why foe came into being can, yeah. can we go back to that time and look at what was the, what was the social transformation happening the new social movements were happening in the early 70s so in australia we had really a, a resurgence of the women's movement of gay and lesbian movements of indigenous rights and in the mid 70s we had the first serious aboriginal land rights act in the top end we had the beginning of handback of land we had the anti-war movement and it was just an incredible time for social justice politics in Australia. And, of course, that's where a lot of the environmental groups came from. The Wilderness Society was from the 70s. Greenpeace was a 
a similar kind of lineage uh, to Friends of the Earth and we all started at about that time and uh, a number of groups finished up but a number of groups have become more established and I guess institutionalised over the last four decades since they started. The first foe was actually started in the US? It actually started in 1969 in the United States and that was uh, quite a famous activist called David Brower and he was working with a group called the Sierra Club and he became frustrated because he could see that environmental issues were increasingly global in nature. It was the beginning of the understanding around ozone depletion and so on and he realised that we needed a global response. So he left Sierra Club, set up Friends of the Earth and it was clearly an idea that resonated with people. Then it jumped very quickly to the UK and Western Europe. The first group in Australia was in 1972 in Adelaide and in 1973 as I understand it there was a group uh, formed in Carlton in Melbourne and it basically went from there and it grew through the Asia region in the 1970s and Latin America very strongly in Africa uh, in the 1990s and after the fall of uh, the Soviet Union into Eastern well into the former Soviet countries so it's now a global network active in more than 70 countries. Okay, let's look at those early years, Cam, and, and just give the contrast to the issues that are being covered today. Is there a great contrast or are the, the concerns from that time move right through those years to the present time? Our longest running single campaign has been the one to oppose Australia's involvement in the nuclear fuel cycle and that was there at the start of our organisation and sadly it's still here now. Uh, but of course we've had some fantastic victories since then. Of course the Jabal uranium mine was uh, was never built. Uh, there's been a 15 year campaign by the federal government to get a low level radioactive waste dump imposed onto Indigenous lands. That hasn't happened. So we've had lots of victories but a lot of issues remain. But it's interesting to think the early 70s were a different time in Australia. We still actually killed whales in Australian waters, which is astonishing to think of now. Um, and that was a, one of the very early Friends of the Earth campaigns. There was still whaling happening out of southwest Western Australia. And another thing that really strikes me is um, at that point we still had lead in our petrol and uh, that was causing some real developmental issues amongst kids, particularly in inner city areas and particularly uh, with relevance to 3CR within the Collingwood and, and Richmond areas. So, you know, there's lots of issues that um, have been won and we've moved on, but unfortunately lots of issues arise. And I think the really, the truly global nature of the environmental crisis and the attached social justice crisis has become very apparent over the last four decades. And I'd imagine the Franklin Dam blockade we played a, a very much a behind-the-scenes kind of role there. We were never a driving force. And I guess quite early on, we defined ourselves as being an, an environmental justice organisation. So we tended to work around industrial issues, around workers' issues, around uh, public health issues. For instance, the, the, the lead in petrol um, issue I mentioned just a second ago, uranium mining impacts on Indigenous people and so on. And in the 70s, of course, there were lots of groups that started to work very strongly on biodiversity issues, including old growth forest so we uh, you know were pivotally involved in some of the major campaigns and uh, peripherally involved in others so fair to say you know the Franklin blockade we weren't a key player there that's where I cut my teeth I guess as an activist and was arrested for the first time I spent 10 days in jail and you know that was a, a real uh, life-changing experience for me as it was for many thousands of people. Talk about the core philosophy I'd imagine that it doesn't differ a great deal from 3CR. I think the core philosophy has remained the same. We uh, very much understand that power really rests with communities if communities choose to assert that power. 
and to a large degree in a modern democracy we give a lot of our power to um, the structures we live in including the, the politicians of the day so our model has always been to work with communities not to tell them what to do but to find common cause and I think that's really been borne out by the really great work we've done around fighting unconventional gas in places like Victoria and Queensland in recent years. We've always been very internationalist so uh, we've always said issues are global and it's really important that rich countries like Australia remember the global south in coming up with solutions because some environmental solutions that are put forward by some environmental groups are, are potentially human rights disasters so we believe it's important to be international in focus but also to be very strongly focused on the human rights perspective. We've always wanted to be involved in forming a better world. We're not just interested in winning short-term campaigns. So we do hope for the transformation of society and we do seek to see eventually a world that is is much fairer, that sees much better redistribution of resources amongst rich and poor and which really understands that we're part of the natural cycles of life and that we actually do exist on a planet of limited resources which requires a change in our economy. And finally, we've also really tried to reflect our worldview of human rights rights are in our structures. So we use consensus, which we have done for, for close to four decades. We have a non-hierarchical structure and that type of thing. So we've sought to you know, create the type of world we'd see within our own organisation. Can you talk a bit about Faux Melbourne's connection with some of the, the Faux groups overseas, particularly I'm thinking about Nigeria and also talking about um, El Salvador. The, the head of Faux International came here a couple of times. Yes, he did. So Nimo Bassi, who's an absolutely legendary activist from Friends of the Earth in Nigeria, very brave group, you know, they were there in the time of the dictatorship. People will remember Ken Sarawiwa and the other men who were murdered by the dictatorship for opposing the role of oil companies in the Niger Delta. To a very real degree, Nimo Bassi and the local Friends of the Earth group took on that campaign after the loss of a lot of the leadership uh, amongst the Agoni people. They're still there, they're still very strong and Nimo has been here a couple of times. He loves Melbourne, he really uh, enjoys this city. He's a poet uh, and he, I remember how much he loved the venues he found to be able to listen to people uh, do their poetry in public. He really loved the cultural aspects of this city. Uh, and Ricardo Navarro was also the chairperson of Friends of the Earth International for quite a while. He's from SESTA, which is Friends of the Earth El Salvador. And uh, he also has visited here a couple of times. And he sees a real common cause. They are really interested in sustainable agriculture and sustainable societies. And he took a lot of inspiration from our uh, cooperative that's been running since 1975. And we really felt there was a, a sense of commonality uh, between our two groups. We were very proud that um, Ricardo was the first chair of Friends of the Earth International from the Global South and to us that was really, really important because, you know, the global environment movement has tended to be driven by relatively wealthy white people from Western Europe and to us that was a really significant kind of change in the organisation. The current chair is a woman from Croatia and we've really sought to have, you know, good representation from our global network uh, in, in how we're represented presented uh, in the media and also in political forums. And closer to home, of course, can you have the Friends of the Earth groups in Indonesia and Malaysia? Yes, we do. Uh, there's a newer group in East Timor, which is very exciting. There's a group in Papua New Guinea. So, yeah, we're, we're quite well represented in the Asian archipelago. We're not so strong on mainland Asia. We have a good group in Nepal, though, which has, uh, as I understand it, many, many local branches in local communities. Well, let's talk about you for a little bit, Cam. You're cut your teeth on the Franklin. 
Tell us about that a little bit more. Well, for me, that was, uh, you know, it was just a kind of light bulb moment. I guess, you know, early days at uni, I was training to be a school teacher. I was wondering what to do with my life. And, um, you know, I went to the Franklin and I met thousands of people who were um, just inspirational. And I remember there were grandmothers from Harvey Bay in Queensland. You know, there were union organisers from Sydney. There were, you know, kind of young people like me who were just getting involved in activism for the first time. I was involved in my first uh, serious direct actions and I did uh, join everyone else in refusing bail. So we were put into Risdon Jail in Hobart until we were brought before the courts and I spent 10 days in there and it was just a, I guess, a real learning experience. I'd never had any trouble with the law up until then and, yeah, it was a real eye-opener to see how many people felt trapped by the system, uh, you know, and ended up where they did and I guess from that, that, you know, influenced my uh, my political development. Um, I then spent quite a bit of time in North America, uh, living and working with Indigenous communities, and particularly on the Navajo Nation, the Dene people who are resisting coal mining on their lands. And I guess that highlighted just the just the brutal nature of the conflict between resource companies and uh, people seeking to live on their traditional lands. And that was a another pivotal influence on my life. And what drew you to foe rather than other groups? I volunteered with lots of other groups, but for me what I loved was the emphasis on grassroots campaigning and the emphasis on human rights because I really believe if you've got an environmental problem, unless you factor people into it and particularly the people who could be negatively impacted by the solution that is developed, so that might be a logger currently cutting down a forest, you're going to come to a solution which really doesn't benefit humanity in general. And uh, I really love the fact that we really seek not always perfectly, but we do really seek to address the human rights dimensions in the problems we face. And that's obviously very, very true now with climate change. The rich have caused the bulk of the problem. It will be the global poor who suffer the most. We need a solution that's really based on, on uh, you know, a human rights perspective and a, a sense of ecological debt. You know, we have a very high per capita impact on the planet. As an average Australian, I'm worth about 18 Indonesians in terms of my ecological footprint. So it's just common sense to me that we need a human rights perspective in seeking solutions to environmental problems. And an important part of FAR has always been the, the food co-op. Yes. As I understand it, I could be wrong, but I think it's the oldest or the longest running cooperative, food cooperative in Australia. It was set up in 1975 and I, I think it's really part of uh, the, the Collingwood and Fitzroy community. We've been here for a very long time. We are a, a community owned, that is a membership based cooperative, so we don't distribute any profits on the rare occasions we make them. We just uh, use them to keep the organisation going. Another thing that I love about the co-op is that it has many people involved in, in programs such as early release programs from correctional facilities, hospitality training for new arrivals to Australia and refugees. So I feel like we're, you know, we're, we're seeking to walk the talk. We're surviving, we're running a not-for-profit business, but we're also um, really integrated into the community and really making a difference in a lot of people's lives. And it's been a conscious decision, has it, to, to stay in Fitzroy or Collingwood? Because my first volunteer work was with Foe when you were down further down Smith Street. Yes, indeed. I guess we see the Inner North as our spiritual home. You know, we've been here really forever since the, the first office was set up in Carlton in the early 70s. A lot of our core membership has moved north. And of course, you know, that's just a demographic issue as people need to move north as, you know, the rents go up or the house prices go up. But, you know, this is really home for us. So, yes, I think we're, we're very happy being in the Inner North still. Let's talk about the attacks 
on foe and other groups at the moment from the, the federal government. What's it all about? It's about politics, really, and it's about ideology. I think uh, people who listen to 3CR will be very familiar with the Institute of Public Affairs. It's a right-wing think tank, and if you want to be terrified about the type of future they want to see for Australia, just do a web search for IPA 75 Radical Ideas for Australia. This is an absolute hit list on uh, the social welfare nets uh, and, and the social kind of standards that I think many Australians see as the basis of, of having a meaningful and a dignified society. They'd like to see less government and less regulation and we know what that means in terms of impacts on low-income people and the environment. They have long lobbied for environmental groups like us to lose our tax status and that campaign has been thoroughly endorsed by the federal government run currently by Tony Abbott and it's in four key areas. They cut the funding to the Environmental Defenders Office Network which was tragic. They cut the admin funding to groups like us but particularly important all the local regional conservation councils around Australia. There's been conversation around generally rewriting the not-for-profit sector's tax deductibility and there's been plans to impose what they call a secondary boycott ban uh, on environmental groups and that means that we couldn't lobby or campaign say for people to divest from one bank to another on the basis of their investments. And the current uh, very worrying challenge to us is a House of Representatives committee which is reviewing the tax deductibility status of green groups. And it's been made very clear by a number of coalition MPs there's between 100 and 150 groups that they want to see taken off the current tax charity status list. We're obviously one of them, but if you can imagine any environmental advocacy group, anyone you care to think of, they're probably on that list. So it's a real, very close to being an existential threat to the current status of the environment movement and the funding levels and the, and the community support we currently enjoy. Is this the worst challenge to green groups that there has been since the 70s? This is worse than anything I've seen in my time and it's even worse than what happened under the government of John Howard. He was hardly a friend of environmental organisations but I've never seen anything quite as ideological as this. I've certainly never seen anything as sustained as this. We have been, I would consider, harassed by the federal government for more than 10 months now over our tax deductibility status and it, it, it wears you down but also it means you're not out there campaigning and doing the things that our members want us to do. So it's very frustrating for us but you, you know you have to keep going you have to keep doing the campaigns you're doing and you have to also defend yourself against these type of attacks from the far right so what's your method of fight back well we're calling on the community to support us through social media through the mainstream media through writing submissions to the house of representatives inquiry that's going on at present you can find out all about that on the friends of the earth australia website we're hoping people will join us and support us at present about 95 percent of our income is from tax deductible sources so if you take away our tax status you're you know clearly trying to kill us as an organization we're determined to survive we're resisting the government's attempts to take our tax status away but you never know how it will play out this is a very determined government so we're hoping that people if they're not already a member or a supporter they will join us at this time we need to be able to survive this and it needs to be remembered as they say touch one touch all if the government is successful in getting rid of our tax status I think we can all rest assured they're not going to stop there they will feel emboldened and they'll start going after others so it's really important that we do pull together as a progressive movement and actually uh, support those who are on the front line and unfortunately right at this moment it's Friends of the Earth which is on the front line. I remember a few years ago they attacked Aid Watch and they took their status off them but they fought that and got it back. 
They did, but that was an exhausting process through the federal court and eventually the high court. It took them several years. You can imagine the, the, just the personal drain on the people involved and the cost of that. The outcome was fantastic for us because the high court reaffirmed the right of organisations that have tax status to engage in political activity and advocacy. So, you know, in a way, the House of Reps inquiry is going against the benchmark finding of the high court. But we know this is, as I said, this is about politics. This isn't about facts. But yes, the current standing ruling from the High Court says we are allowed to do what we do. And the 8th of May, is that part of the fight back? Well, yes, we kind of planned this just because we needed a celebration in February 1974, all the various local Friends of the Earth groups around the country got together for the first time and they established Friends of the Earth Australia. So we're having a belated birthday party for the fact that we've turned 40. We were just too busy with campaigns last year to actually have the party. And um, the nice little story I love about this is the first meeting was actually held on French Island in Western Port Bay and that's where Friends of the Earth Australia was established. And the reason they chose that place was because at that point the state government of the day was planning to build a nuclear reactor you know barely 90 or 100 kilometers from the cbd of melbourne you know if someone suggested it now it would be seen as being completely mad but there was a real proposal in those days and it was defeated and um, i think it's really important to remember these are very difficult days if you're involved in environmental activism we're fighting on so many fronts but it's really important to remember that we can actually win and we do win and um, I, I just like the symbolism of, of that story and the fact that here we are 41 years later we're as strong as ever we're going well and uh, we're still achieving really good things and where's the celebration being held it's being held just down the road from Friends of the Earth in Collingwood in the Spiegel tent at Circus Oz. People would be most welcome to jump on our website and grab those details. We're suggesting people pre-buy tickets just because it is going to sell out. We're, we've only got uh, space for 250 people and there's going to be a bunch of great people speaking, including Scott Ludlam and some kind of luminaries that have been involved in Friends of the Earth over the years and a bunch of really good bands and it will be just a great chance to, to celebrate the achievements we've made, to celebrate great grassroots and community activism and, you know, get together with some like-minded people. Thanks, Cam. Thank you very much. And that, of course, is Cam Walker, the National Campaign's coordinator with Friends of the Earth here in Melbourne. And the webpage, it's, I dare say it's Friends of the Earth. I'm not sure whether it's Friends of the Earth Australia.org.au, but I'm quite sure that you will find it if you do a search for Faux Australia. And that involves both the do on the 8th of May and also if you can assist financially to make sure that Foe stays where, right where it is. It's two minutes past five and you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Last Tuesday afternoon, Sydney University staff for Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions presented a forum, Why Boycotting Israel 
isn't anti-Semitic. And reading from the flyer, the global campaign to boycott institutions and companies complicit with Israeli abuses of Palestinian human rights is frequently met with accusations that it is anti-Jewish. This panel of three Jewish speakers will discuss why BDS is not anti-Semitic, what the boycott is really about and why they support it. Extended Q&A period will allow for a full airing of the issues with alternative viewpoints welcomed. The following day, I spoke with one of the organisers of the forum, Paul Duffield, who is a member of Sydney University staff for BDS and co-author with Gabriella Scoff of an article published online in mondovis.net titled Growing Jewish Support for Boycott and the Changing Landscape of the BDS Debate. Paul is a visiting scholar at the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Sydney, where Associate Professor Jake Lynch is the director and currently one of those targeted in a concentrated political campaign against Palestinian supporters. I first asked Paul if the forum was a reaction to the recent protest at Sydney Uni during the talk of Richard Kemp, a retired British Army colonel who now defends the actions of the Israeli military. No, it wasn't. It's been in planning for a few months, for three or four months. The event was called to draw attention to the fact that there's a growing support internationally amongst Jewish communities for a boycott of Israel. And unfortunately, this growing support has been very consistently excluded from mainstream media coverage. So that's something we were very concerned about. We wanted to invite some prominent Jewish supporters of the Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions campaign in Australia to speak about their experience of what it means to them to be a Jewish supporter of the Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions campaign and why that is an important human rights campaign for them as Jews and for them as human rights activists and anti-racism activists. And who are those three people? The three people were Dr Alana Linton, and she is a lecturer at the University of Western Sydney. She's a scholar and anti-racism activist. The second speaker was Cathy Peters. Cathy is a radio documentary producer and Palestine solidarity activist. And the third speaker was Associate Professor Peter Slezak, co-founder of Independent Australian Jewish Voices. They were talking about why... The Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions campaign is clearly not anti-Semitic, contrary to many, many of the accusations that are continually levelled by the lobby who are attacking the the Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions campaign. So they wanted to be very clear that the Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions campaign is not anti-Semitic. And they also talked about why they support it, and also they talked about why it's important for Australians to support the Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions campaign as part of broader anti-racism efforts. Can you expand on that a little bit more? The data I've looked at from the Australian Department of Defence shows that the Australian Department of Defence has spent over $1 billion, $72 million. We're not talking about just $10 million or $100 million. We're talking about $1 billion, $72 million of Australian taxpayers' money has been spent by the Australian Department of Defence on contracts with Israeli military companies. One of those Israeli military companies who have received the vast bulk of the funding is is a company called Albert Systems. Albert Systems has been intimately involved in violence both against Palestinian civilians in Gaza and also has been intimately involved with 
providing security for the West Bank barrier, which has been erected by Israel, which cuts deeply into Palestinian territory. The West Bank barrier that was constructed by Israel was declared illegal by the International Court of Justice in 2004. Um, despite this, companies like Albert Systems have continued to actively support that. Um, Albert Systems is one of the main providers of electronic fence detection systems to this West Bank barrier. Albert Systems also provides the Skylark 7.5 mini drone, which has been operational in the Israeli military since 2008 and was used in massive quantities for support of ground military actions and attacks on civilians and the assault on Gaza, including the most recent one in 2014, codenamed Operation Protective Edge. In that assault, Albert's lethal drone Hermes 900 assembled jointly with the L3 communication in a $120 million venture was also used extensively. And also the Israeli military has also used Albert's Skylark drones in the West Bank for um, the military campaign of house arrests in June 2014. These uses by the Israeli military of Albert Systems are so critical to their profit line and so profitable for them that in the month of July 24 alone, during the peak of Israel's assault on Gaza, Albert Systems' profits increased by 6.1%, the highest level of increase since 2010. So this is a clear example of where Australian taxpayers' money is being used directly to fund organisations like Albert Systems, which are intimately involved in violence against Palestinian civilians and intimately involved in well-established breaches of international law. Of course, Israel's occupation of the West Bank and of Gaza was declared illegal by that same International Court of Justice advisory opinion I had mentioned before in 2004. And there's, there's even more examples, you know, I could go on and on about how Albert Systems and other similar military firms that are funded by Australian taxpayers' money are intimately involved and support the abuse of Palestinian human rights and violence against Palestinian civilians. You invited the audience for a Q&A session yes, afterwards. Right. What sort of crowd did you get for your forum? Um, I was very well attended. The room was almost packed out. There was about 80 people in attendance. And the capacity of the room, I say, would have been about probably a 90 or 100. So we were very happy with, with the turnout. And what was the Q&A session like? The Q&A session was very interesting. We had a range of questions from people from both Australia and overseas asking three speakers reasons why they support boycott divestment sanctions. And also there were some critical questions as well, which I think is really important. Um, you know, critical questions which are really based on, unfortunately, a lot of misunderstandings about the Boycott Divestment Sanctions campaign, which the speakers were able to address. And th that was why this event was such a unique opportunity, Jan, because very often these misunderstandings are uncritically presented by the mainstream media, whereas, there's, as, as I've spoken just previously, there's ample evidence to show that Australian taxpayers' money is being used to fund Israeli arms firms that, that are intimately involved in human rights abuses and violence against Palestinians. Can you give an example of the misunderstandings that um, were presented at that meeting? So one of the misunderstandings that was voiced was that when we boycott Israel, aren't we just singling out Israel? And Israel doesn't deserve to be singled out when there are human rights abuses all throughout the region, you know, countries like Iran, Syria, and of course Hamas. But of course, one of those misunderstandings that we need to be clear about is that the Australian government already maintains an extensive regime of sanctions against Iran, Hamas 
and Syrian perpetrated human rights abuses, including Russia actually as well, and the Ukraine, and of course North Korea and a, and a range of other countries. So a lot of countries in the region, the Australian government has already declared that they will not support human rights abuses of other countries in the region and other regimes in the region, including Hamas, Iran, Syria. And the Australian government's actually gone further and they've actually put formal sanctions on those regimes. But in the case of Israel, there is a clear double standard. Not only has the Australian government not said that it will oppose Israeli human rights abuses, it's actually actively funding the Israeli arms firms that are deeply complicit in those human rights abuses. So that's a clear double standard, and that's one of the misunderstandings that we were very happy to address yesterday from the audience. On your pamphlet for the forum, you have a, a photo. Could you explain what the photo says? There's a banner. Can you explain what the banner says and where that photo came from? So the photo is from a protest in New York City in Union Square in March 2014. And there's a lady standing there holding a sign which says, in the centre of the photo, which says, I am Jewish, I say never again to anyone, it is time to boycott. I first became aware of that photo when it was added to an article that I've published on the um, online media platform called Mondovice, which is a liberal Jewish platform based in Brooklyn in the US. And the article I wrote there was titled Growing Jewish Support for Boycott and the Changing Landscape of the BDS Debate. And I think that photo really exemplifies the fact that there is now a changing conversation around the world, not just, not just in Australia, but internationally. The conversation is, is, is shifting from, you know, you, it used to be governments are very happy to support Israel's human rights abuses, and public were not so aware of Israel's deep human rights abuses. The conversation is now shifting, particularly within international Jewish communities, where the conversation is now, OK, so to what extent do we boycott Israel? Do we just boycott the illegal settlements? Do we just boycott the illegal occupation? Or do we also look at boycotting organisations within Israel that are intimately involved in the deep legal inequalities that are an intrinsic part of the Jewish state? When people talk about the Jewish state, intrinsically what it means, and right now this is the current reality, Jan, is that there's over 50 laws which discriminate against Palestinians purely based on the fact that those Palestinians, and these are Palestinian citizens of Israel and the internationally recognised borders of Israel, these 50 Israeli laws discriminate against Palestinian citizens of Israel purely based on the fact that they're not Jewish. One of the most famous examples is the Jewish law of return, where any individual in the world, if they could manage to convince Israeli government bureaucrats that they are sufficiently Jewish, however the Israeli state defines Jewish, they automatically qualify for citizenship in Israel. That is a right not afforded to Palestinian refugees whose families have lived in Israel for generations and who were forced out during the creation of the modern state of Israel from 1948-49. So that's a clear example of where different rights are provided to people based purely on their ethnic category, a categorization that is determined by the state of Israel. That's just one of those 50 laws, yeah? There's, there, there's 49 other laws and there's other bills pending as well. And this information has been documented by an Israeli human rights organisation called Adala. Well, that's just one example of the, of, of the laws, you know, obviously I know I could go on with, with the other laws there. Because of this deep legal inequality, not just within 
the illegally occupied West Bank and Gaza, but within Israel itself, trying to grapple with, you know, how do we address that? You know, how do we withdraw international support for this deep legal inequality? That is the core of the, of the boycott, division and sanctions campaign. Because, of course, the essence of any boycott is about withdrawing support. Unfortunately, Australia can't choose to be... We can't choose to be neutral. Yeah, as I've spoken before, millions of dollars, in fact, over $1 billion of Australian taxpayers' money has gone to Israeli military firms that are intimately involved in the abuse of Palestinian human rights. So the responsibility they have, the basic responsibility that any citizen has in a functioning democracy is to not commit illegal behaviour and to not support illegal behaviour. Right now, Australian taxpayers' money is being used to support illegal behaviour. And so the basic responsibility, without the international community wanting to jump in and try and fix the problem, you know, and we know that history is littered with many examples of Western countries, colonial countries, intervening in human rights crises in order to try and fix the problem with incredibly mixed, incredibly checkered results. Without wanting to jump in and fix the problem, the Boycott, Divestment Sanctions campaign says, first, we need to take care of our own responsibility. How is our own behaviour? Forget about other people's behaviour for a second. Let's just start, let's just start basically with our own behaviour. How is our own behaviour contributing to illegal behaviour and human rights abuses? And that's why the Boycott, Divestment Sanctions campaign calls for withdrawing international support from organisations that are involved in the abuse of Palestinian human rights in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. How is the campaign within the staff at Sydney University growing for BDS? Well, one of the big catalysts, and Jan, you alluded to this before with, with Jake Lynch's legal case, Jake Lynch's legal case, I think, really revealed the, the massive efforts that are being put in to try and hold back the Boycott, Divestment Sanctions campaign, to try and obstruct it, to try and prevent the campaign from carrying out its role in educating people. And, of course, with the serious legal attacks against Professor Jake Lynch, that led to the formation of a number of groups, really a catalyst, for, I think, for a lot of people to realise the severity of the attacks on Palestinian human rights, even within Australia. And so out of that campaign against Jake Lynch, the lawfare campaign by an Israeli law firm called Sharat Hadin, and I should actually notice that we know from US diplomatic cables leaked through WikiLeaks that Sharat Hadin has actually taken direction from the Israeli government or on exactly who to, who to prosecute. And Israeli government spokespeople have actually spoken to US government people and, and said that they view Sharat Hadin as an opportunity to attack their political opponents in a way that the state is legally not entitled to. So as an arm of Israeli foreign policy in order to further the goals of the Israeli government's policies towards Palestinians. The Sharat Hadin legal case, which rapidly collapsed once the judge actually ordered that Sharat Hadin actually show respectable evidence for their claims of anti-Semitism and racial discrimination, they failed to come up with that evidence and they were forced to withdraw their case from lack of evidence. Now, that case was really a catalyst for the formation of, of some groups. One group that I'm personally involved with is Sydney Staff for BDS. Sydney Staff for BDS is a collection of staff at the University of Sydney who are working to promote and support the Boycott, Divestment Sanctions campaign at the University of Sydney. And we've also formed an umbrella group as well called the National Tertiary Education Union Members for BDS, NTU Members for BDS. And that's working to support BDS activities at Australian campuses as well throughout Australia. So that's just a couple of the groups that have formed. Yesterday was the second forum that Sydney Staff for BDS has held. We also held 
another forum last year as well, where we invited Palestinian and Arab speakers to come and talk about the importance of BDS. And that's really one of the core things about the Boycott, Defence and Sanctions campaign is that, you know, as I said before, it's not about foreign intervention trying to jump in and save, in inverted commas, the local people, which is the history of humanitarian intervention and foreign intervention is incredibly checkered and incredibly mixed results. The Boycott, Defence and Sanctions campaign actually came from a call from a wide range of Palestinian civil society organisations in 2005 to request very simply that international people cease their support for the abuse of Palestinian human rights and the breaches of international law in Israel and Palestine. It's asking people to withdraw their support for violence against Palestinian civilians and the breaches of Palestinian human rights. Do you feel any pressure from the administration at Sydney Uni against your actions? I believe during Jake Lynch's case, there was actually a statement made, and I would have to check this, but I believe there was a statement made by the university administration admonishing Jake Lynch for his stand. Subsequently evolved that that statement by the University of Sydney actually ran contrary to the Sydney University Staff's Enterprise Agreement, and so they had to retract that statement. What about the investigation about the disruption to the lecture a couple of weeks ago and the threats to Jake Lynch? Well, there, there are a number of concerning elements of that investigation. I was actually asked to, to join that investigation. The information that I received from what was ostensibly a third-party investigation team um, actually asked that I keep the mere existence of the investigation secret. Now, this was actually comical <laughs> and clearly inconsistent and disorganised because just a few days earlier, the university's vice-chancellor had announced in the Daily Telegraph that they were holding an investigation. A second very concerning element of the investigation was that the lawyer who was running the investigation, and the investigation was identified to me in email as being run through by an organisation called Work Dynamic. That lady um, was a lawyer by the name of Jane Wright. She's actually listed as a member of the Office of General Counsel, which is the university's legal office. Now, this directly contradicts the university's claim and also in, in the investigation and communications to me and publicly that the investigation would be independent and would be carried out by an independent law firm. The fact that the head investigator of this supposedly independent investigation is also listed as an employee and publicly listed as an employee of the university really fatally compromises the independence of this investigation. And the fact that I was actually misled, myself and my colleagues who were asked to do interviews and actually required to, to go and have an interview, were actually misled to the fact that this actually wasn't an independent and impartial investigation is extremely concerning. And this is something which our union, the National Tertiary Education Union, the NTEU, has taken up as a matter of urgency with the university's administration and with the people in running the university's investigation. It's a big concern for us, Jan, yeah. So I should be clear, the initial instructions that I was given were said that we weren't even meant to expose the presence of an investigation. That's obviously irrelevant now, the fact that the university chose to disclose it, but they have also asked us to enter into a more narrow confidentiality agreement regarding the investigation and regarding our interview. That would be a very unusual course of events, wouldn't it? Well, yes. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're speaking about the fact that the university says it's doing an independent investigation and then, you know, selects one, selects someone who is listed as an employee of the university <laughs> to run this independent investigation um, and then misleads staff, where all the emails I received regarding the investigation, none of them actually stated that Jane Wright was, was listed as an employee of the university 
all of them could, you know, her signature with this work dynamic organisation. So I think it's very unusual and I think it's actually very disturbing too, given the gravity of the events that happened at the Kemp lecture, given the fact that there was Islamic phobic attacks, I've witnessed the fact that one supporter of, of Richard Kemp at that event actually threw water onto a young Muslim lady dressed in a hijab who was standing there silently, very quietly in, in front of this woman. Given the fact that I myself also witnessed the assault of two University of Sydney staff members and given the fact that the university, when they first, their first public statement and an email that was sent out to all staff and I believe all students by the Vice-Chancellor, only mentioned concerns about anti-Semitism. There was no mention of concerns about physical assault of university staff, which I personally find is outrageous. The fact that the university would not take that seriously. And there's no mention of Islamophobic attacks and anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian attacks that were also reported at the event. So I think it's very unusual and I think it's extremely disturbing. And I would hope that the university has the integrity to admit that the investigation is, fundament is, is fundamentally and fatally flawed and that they will abandon what is clearly an inappropriate, unprofessional and invalid investigation. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Listeners are welcome to check out an article that I wrote with a, with a colleague of mine that I, that I briefly mentioned on the Mondo Vice media platform. The, the article is called Growing Jewish Support for Boycott and the Changing Landscape of the BDS Debate. And that was written by myself and a colleague, Gabby Scoff. And that was written back in June 2014. And that gives a lot of detail of a wide range of Jewish organisations internationally who are now supporting boycott tactics against Israel's human rights abuses. One interesting fact that I heard just recently is that Jewish Voice for Peace, who have officially endorsed the Boycott Divestment Sanctions campaign, one interesting fact is that they've actually received more Facebook supporters or Facebook followers than both IPAC and J Street. And IPAC and J Street are often, you know, trumpeted as the chief Israel lobby organisations in the US. The fact that the Jewish Voice of Peace has received more Facebook followers than they have, I think, is ind indicative and illustrative of the growing support within Jewish communities and within and internationally, and internationally in non-Jewish communities as well, for that people are acknowledging now that we need to withdraw support for Israel's human rights abuses against Palestinians. And that's Paul Duffield, who's a visiting scholar at the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at Sydney University and a member of Sydney staff for BDS. And as he said, he's the co-author of a paper, Growing Jewish Support for Boycott and the Changing Landscape of the BDS Debate. It's quite a long article, but it's a very informative one, and it's published in mondovis.net. And there certainly is a massive effort being put into trying to hold back obstruct and prevent BDS. I'll just read you a short story from Media Lens Dissident Voice, and this is the 8th of April 2015. The sudden cancellation of an academic conference on Israel, as well as the lack of outcry from inverted commas mainstream media, demonstrates once again the skewed limits of free speech in advanced Western democracy. Just week, Charlie already feels like ancient history. It certainly does not apply when it comes to scrutiny of the State of Israel. The conference titled International Law and the State of Israel, Legitimacy, Responsibility and Exceptionalism was to be held at the University of Southampton from the 15th to the 17th of April. Planned speakers included Richard Falk, the former UN Special Rapporteur 
on human rights in the Palestinian territories. Gabby Pitterberg, a historian at the University of California at Los Angeles, and Israeli academic Alan Pape and Palestinian historian Nur Masala. The meeting was billed as the first of its kind and constitutes a groundbreaking historical event on the road toward justice and enduring peace in Palestine. The approach would be scholarly with multidisciplinary debate reflecting diverse perspectives and thus general disagreements. Thus, rather than being a cloven of coven of political extremists and violent hotheads, this was to be a serious gathering of respected and authoritarian academics with an in-depth knowledge of Palestine and Israel. But intense pressure from the Israel lobby about the airing of anti-Semitic views has torpedoed the University of Southampton's earlier stated commitment to uphold freedom of speech within the law. In a classic piece of bureaucratic hand wringing, the university issued a corporate-style statement on the 1st of April that leaned heavily on the pretext of health and safety to kill off the conference. This happened a mere two weeks before the conference, planned months earlier, in consultation with the university, was due to begin. And that's the fight that goes on. That's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at four o'clock and I'll leave you for, in a moment's time, one minute time, Johnson will be here with Food Fight. Bye for now.